Hey everyone, this is Lucas Banyo, an investor at Village Global, and I'm here with my co-host Ian Cinnamon. Welcome to SolarPunk. In this podcast, we cover topics related to space and defense and discuss how technology can contribute to a better and safer world. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global SolarPunk. We're really excited to have Ross Dowdat with us today on the show. Ross is an American political analyst, blogger, author, and a New York Times colonist. Previously, he was also a senior editor at The Atlantic. Ross is the author of many books, including The Decadent Society, published back in 2020, which we will discuss at length today. Ross, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Amazing. So, Ross, on this show, we talk a lot about aerospace and defense. And generally, when we're talking about these things, we're talking with a lot of people that see those industries as sort of the frontier for technology and frontier for optimism uh, in America and in the West. And part of the reason why we're so excited to have you on the show today is to have a different conversation to talk about, you know, so many things that happened in our culture and in our society over the last few decades that you have studied in your book, The Decadent Society. Can you give us a little bit to get us started, just the overall thesis uh, that you had for the book and what motivated you to write that piece? Sure. The book is basically an attempt to try to weave together what I think are a lot of the defining trends of life in the developed world, basically since that (laughs) peak of defense and aerospace achievement, um, the Apollo program and the moon landing uh, in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And the argument is that since then, we have entered a period of what you might call stagnation, drift, and repetition at a very high level of wealth and technological development. Um, So it's not an account of decline and collapse. Instead, the argument is basically that the Western world has become kind of stuck in certain ways, that technological progress has slowed down, um, that political systems have become sclerotic and gridlocked, that uh, sort of confidence and optimism about the future have declined in a very measurable way. You can see in the fact that almost every rich country in the world is having too few children to sustain itself over a long period of time. And finally, and this is the one that's a little harder to sort of prove with statistics, although there is some interesting statistical analysis, I think our culture has entered a kind of repetitive spiral where, you know, we, we at the level of popular culture, we're sort of recycling and rebooting the uh, creative products of the baby boomer era, um, you know, the sort of tyranny of the superhero movie in cinema is a prime example of this. And then this is also true at a kind of more the highbrow level in um, intellectual debate, even theological debate. I write a little bit about religion. Um, We're sort of stuck in patterns that were established by the social revolutions of the 1960s and 1970s. And it's become very difficult for us to get out of it. So that's what I mean by decadence. It's sort of disappointingly, it's not just, you know, orgies and chocolate covered strawberries and, you know, whatever, whatever you sort of associate with that aspect of the term. It's more about sort of frustration and sterility and not being able to find clear lines of advance. So 
before we dive deeper into the the four big causes uh, that that you described, can you talk a little bit more about the the meaning that that you mentioned with the Apollo moon landing? You know, how did the world look different back then? I think I think you can see the Apollo program as in effect sort of the last clear frontier moment for American civilization in particular. Uh, I think there's a lot of truth to this sort of, you know, somewhat cliched, but I think fundamentally accurate account of the United States as a society shaped and stamped by the existence of a physical frontier, a sort of geographical frontier, an idea of expansion. Uh, And rather famously, that period came to an end with the closing of the frontier, the end of the Indian Wars in the late 19th century. But the promise of space travel, space exploration seemed to offer, I think, you know, a a sort of new, new horizons for the same kind of outward moving, expansive ambitions that have defined, I think, Western modernity generally, and certainly America in particular, there's a reason that, you know, Star Trek starts with space, the final frontier. Um, it's very sort of self-consciously linking space travel to earlier processes of exploration. Um, and in this case, hopefully not conquest. Hopefully we're just, you know, either going to be good observers of the prime directive like on Star Trek The Next Generation and not interfere with anyone, or we'll just find lots of empty worlds to colonize. Um, but either way, I think that's that's sort of a powerful cultural aspect of what we now sort of look back on in hindsight as the space age. The space age was sort of the most futuristic term imaginable. We're entering the space age. And now, you know, pending pending the work of Elon Musk and SpaceX and the possible return to the moon, we for at least for the last 20 or 30 years, we've regarded the space age as something that's in the past. It sort of ends somewhere between Apollo 13 going wrong and the Challenger explosion, something that isn't part of our cultural horizons any anymore. And I think that's, you know, that's that's a, a real change uh, that sort of connects to this general sense that, you know, human beings have filled the earth, perhaps we're busy despoiling the earth, making it uninhabitable, and we don't have anywhere else to go. That's been, I think, a controlling theme of life in the developed world since the 1970s. What's interesting is, and you're talking about that when we we talk about kind of the moon landing that was obviously a very government funded program put forward by the government you also talk about kind of elon and spacex and origin and relativity and all these amazing companies doing it more commercially do you think that's part of the shift as well away from kind of the government funded uh these movements now towards commercial companies trying to reinvigorate that yeah i mean i think if you look his i, I think you could argue perhaps that you know one of the many reasons that the space age sort of ended when it did or didn't take off as people expected when it did um, was precisely that it didn't have a strong commercial element. If you look at, you know, the the age of exploration in the 15th and 16th centuries, the, the, the commercial element was always essential to funding voyages of discovery, funding, you know, sort of colonial projects and colonial ambitions. When governments are funding the, when they're funding Christopher Columbus, there's an expectation 
of um, some kind of material payoff. And obviously, companies like the East India Company are playing their own sort of crucial role. So if you wanted to be sort of, I guess, optimistic about um, the trajectory of the last 50 years, you could say that, in effect, sort of government, Cold War-driven government spending carried us as far as that approach alone could go. And it was always going to be inevitable that you'd have to wait for sort of private concerns and private ambitions to mature and come of age before you could make the next big leap. Um, and I want to be clear, I'm not in the book arguing that decadence is destined to be eternal. I think, you know, I'm, I try to be very alert throughout for sort of theories of and signs of how it might be coming to an end. And you'd certainly have to put sort of the return of spaceflight as, you know, sort of a, 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 a goal and a project as one of the hopeful signs. I think there are plenty of unhopeful <laughs> signs as well. Um, but but Blue Origin and SpaceX are definitely sort of anti-decadent projects at the moment. So speaking of decadence, can you walk us through kind of the four causes of decadence that you've outlined in the book? Sure. Although I'd say that they are, it's more accurate to say that they're sort of four manifestations that interact with each other. I think the question of what causes decadence is a really, really tangled one that, you know, or in certain ways, it's maybe a really simple one where you just say, look, societies get rich. And as they get as they get rich, they become less innovative, uh, sort of the urgency that drives innovation diminishes, that would be the really simple explanation, but or you can get into a complex one and the complex tangle that I'm describing starts with um, this kind of uh, a kind of stagnation that is both economic and technological. Stagnation is a little bit of an overstatement because what, what we're really talking about is deceleration. It's not that technological progress stopped in 1975. Obviously, all of Silicon Valley demonstrates that it didn't. And similarly, it's not that economic growth goes away. We're richer today than we were in 1975. But relative to what happened during the Industrial Revolution, relative to what Americans expected in the post-war era, you've had this real deceleration, this decline in growth rates, decline in productivity uh, growth that's you know, even more palpable in Europe than in the United States. Various measurements of innovation have gone into decline. There's a lot of you know, pieces written about whether ideas are getting harder to find, whether we're sort of hitting certain ceilings. So that that intersection, economic slowdown and sort of technological disappointment in technological innovation outside of Silicon Valley, that's sort of the first the first aspect. The second is sclerosis, which is basically um, sort of the the aging and creaking of our political systems. Uh, and I think this applies to both the project of the European Union, which has ended up in the last few decades sort of stuck halfway between actual federalism and a sort of workable workable decentralization. And that it's contributed in turn to sort of Europe's ungovernability. And then in the US, I don't think I don't think anybody needs to be persuaded that American government has become less effective, more gridlocked, more defined by polarization and fundamentally stalemate um, than it was in either the New Deal era or even Ronald Reagan's era in the 1980s. And again, you can sort of point to 
signs and hopeful things suggesting maybe that stalemate is breaking or you know there's more room for bipartisanship now um but overall the trend has been towards towards stalemate um and gridlock and then the third is is sterility which i, I mentioned before basically just the sort of we're, we're used to it it's really a kind of reality that the richest societies in human history are all just not reproducing themselves. And in many cases, including South Korea and other countries in East Asia, it's really dramatic. And you're going to have sort of massive depopulation in those countries. In places like the US that have a longer history of assimilating immigrants and had a higher birth rate for longer, the, the sort of crisis is less immediate and urgent, but the general trend is just towards aging. All rich societies are just getting older and older and older, and that has inevitable consequences. It makes them more resistant to political change and reform. It makes them more resistant to innovation, less likely to generate it. Older societies are just more likely to be sort of stable but stuck, I think, is one way to look at it. And then finally, you have this idea of repetition. Uh, and again, I already talked about Marvel movies. Um, I, I think one thing that's interesting is how the internet has played into cultural repetition because the internet was, you know, it's the big technological innovation and everyone said, all right, this is going to be the big engine of cultural innovation as well. Everyone's going to be off in their quirky little subcultures on the internet generating, you know, all kinds of innovative art forms and ideas and all of these things. But in reality, especially in the age of social media, I think the internet has often been a kind of conformity inducing machine instead of you know, instead of everybody, you know, small groups of 500 people each buying a different book, everyone gets pushed towards the same bestsellers, the same sort of sort things that everyone else is talking about. Everyone ends up on the same social media networks. Everyone is sort of trying to avoid getting canceled and, you know, sort of sort of pushed off or or sort of mobbed on those on those resources, e even something, you know, something like popular music, a critic who's written about who's written about this a lot lately, the the fact that if you look at popular music, people said, ah, you know, Spotify, and all these, all these great resources, they'll connect people with really obscure artists, and will contribute to some kind of, you know, renaissance of sort of small bands and small acts. But in reality, the nature of the algorithm pushes people towards the same things. And often those same things are good, right? Like if everybody is just going back and listening to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and sort of cultural products from the peak of the boomer era, they're not listening to bad music, but they also aren't generating the audience for and the demand for novelty that, again, historically drives cultural innovation. So the internet has been more more inducive of more conducive to cultural conformity and repetition than I think a lot of people, myself included, expected 20 years ago. And then just to finish, all of these things in the causal sense, all of these things are are interacting, right? Like inter, you know, the in internet politics makes Washington politics more broken. Uh, demographic decline feeds economic stagnation. Economic stagnation feeds demographic decline because people aren't optimistic about future growth, so they're less likely to have children. So it's it's every society contains some decadence in it. There's all you know. There's always a little decadence somewhere. If you if a little stagnation, a little repetition. What characterizes our era is there's decadence in a lot of different domains and they're sort of feeding into and confirming one another's patterns, I would say.
Fascinating. You know, Ross, to double click on a few of these, uh, the, the first one that you mentioned, economic stagnation and, and technological stagnation, uh, is particularly interesting to us because as venture capitalists, uh, we, we hear VCs and we hear founders talk about disruption every day. Uh, whereas the argument that you're making reminds me much more of you know the the saying that Peter Thiel had a, a few a decade ago that we were promised flying cars and we got 140 characters. What like what is it about the technological progress of the last 20 years that has not met either your, your expectations, but but has not met the standards of technological progresses of prior eras? Why has it been different? Well. I mean that's that's the not million dollar right, but but trillion dollar question. Um, I think there are a number of different things going on. One is it's it is plausible, right, that you know the secrets of the universe are hard to unlock, and if you have a period where suddenly a bunch of secrets are unlocked, you know all all at once, whether it's in you know the or you know the sort of scientific revolutions of the Enlightenment, or sort of the wave of inventions in 19th century America, or splitting the atom. You you shouldn't be necessarily surprised that then you hit certain ceilings and it takes a while uh, to break through to the next level, right? So you know it might be that, for, for instance, something like you know genetic engineering, right, where there ha- you know there obviously has been progress, breakthroughs. You know CRISPR is an is an amazing thing. But relative to the promises that people were making when the human genome was mapped, which happened when I was, you know, basically a teenager, right? This was sort of the late 1990s and everyone said, okay, we figured this out and large scale genetic engineering is right around the corner. And well, it wasn't. And was that because our institutions are broken or because in fact, the human genome is really complicated and you can't just sort of assume that one breakthrough will naturally lead to another. Um, so you you have to sort of keep that possibility in mind. Maybe it's nobody's fault and just certain we've hit certain areas of scientific endeavor where progress is slow. And then at a certain point, it will it will reaccelerate. Right. So that's that's part of the story. But then there also, I think, has to be sort of institutional pieces of this. Right. You know, in in the American context. Right. So there's been a lot less transformation and change in the built environment in transportation um, and, you know, sort of housing and things related related to those to those things than people would have expected based on how fast things changed over the prior the prior hundred years. The built environment uh, and the transportation environment of America in 2007 looked more like it did in 1967 by far than 1967 looked like 1907. Right. And that is in part just sort of to go back to an earlier point how a rich rich societies favor incumbency and they disfavor they disfavor real disruption right so the rich society says well you know we could we could have you disrupt all of our built infrastructure um but we're already rich and that would be that would be costly and unpleasant and so and we wouldn't like its environmental impact and we're going to bog you down in permitting reform in permitting processes that take forever and this will encourage you to disrupt instead the food delivery business and you know this is not to say that like disrupting the food delivery business isn't isn't impressive in its own way but it's quite different from, you know, building building new transportation infrastructure in California or the Northeast, right? So just things like how long it takes to 
get projects approved and build new things and change the existing landscape has pushed, you know, the kind of stuff you're talking about venture capital dollars in particular directions. Like why would you spend why would you spend tons of venture capital that's then going to be defeated by an environmental review board when you can spend that same venture capital figuring out um, a new lifestyle app instead. So there's been, I think, a push of innovation into, into specifically virtual domains because the real world, again, in sort of a developed, a developed society is hostile to various kinds of transformation. And that's, that I think is part of the story that, you know, that sort of Silicon Valley has been better at sort of disruption that not surprisingly is connected to core Silicon Valley type things like virtual the virtual realities that the internet creates than it has been at taking its taking its wealth and disrupting um, disrupting non-virtual arenas. So Ross, on, on the on the third horseman that, that you mentioned birth rates, it strikes me as an interesting one because the the other three uh, economic growth, uh, government, and repetition sound to me as Western phenomena, whereas the the phenomena of birth rates, with the exception of Israel, is something that we're seeing in in all rich nations all over the all over the world. Yes. Why Why do you think that is? Because it it does sound to be a, an outlier compared compared to the other ones. Yes. I, well, I mean, I think part of it is right that there is a kind of there is a convergence that it isn't just in birth rates between Western decadence and what we think of as sort of develop, developing economies, right? That it, in fact, if you look at the last 20 years, even and this, this includes even China, but it's certainly true of countries like Brazil and India and South Africa, countries that, you know, 20 years ago were sort of assumed to be then, you know, the sort of the potential powerhouses of a post-American, post-Western world. Their growth rates have also disappointed. Their political systems have not necessarily achieved great things. And, and in that sense, I, I think there are ways in which you know, decadence has decadence is most most palpable in the Western world, but it has been globalized to some extent. That you know, non non Western societies have become sort of just rich enough to stagnate and become become less than dynamic. And then you have situations like you're going to have in China over the next twenty years, where they they get the population decline. Um, before they get as rich as they had hoped to be. So they get old before they get as old as Japan before they get as rich as Japan, as old as France potentially before they before they get as rich as France. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges facing, you know, facing sort of non-Western powers that they can get caught in this in this decadence trap too, to some extent. But it does. It definitely means you're right that the the fertility issue isn't just a matter of like, oh, you know, the exhausted Westerners have given up on, you know, have given up on the future uh, and are sort of ceding it to, um, you know, people of color from from the southern hemisphere. There there is clearly sort of general ways in which urbanization, 
mass entertainment, um, the you know transition from rural to urban economies, the transition uh, from agricultural to industrial to post-industrial economies, secularization, sort of the decline of traditional religious institutions. These are all global and not just Western phenomena, and they all lead to declining birth rates almost almost everywhere. Now, Africa, which has not gone as far in a lot of these other transitions, is also still demographically exceptional. Its birth rates have not declined as fast as sort of the projections of United Nations demographers and Western demographers assumed they would 20 years ago. And that in, in that sense, demographically, Africa, again, its birth rates are trending down, but it's sort of the last sort of non-decadent society in that sense. Um, but it also hasn't achieved sort of economic and cultural takeoff, which means that the biggest impact of that divergence of African demographics on the rest of the world is likely to be through migration uh, over over the next 50 years into Europe, especially, but but around the world, which is a potential source of both, I think, dynamism and and strife and chaos at the same time. Ross, so what I hear you describing is a world that has become much more a zero sum and that in some ways has lost its sense of its sense of meaning and ambition for what societies and humankind can do for the world. So I, I want to pick on the point that you made that is something that we have not covered on the show at all, uh, which is the decline of religion. H how is the decline of religion and the rise of secularism related to all the all, all the four horsemen that you described? So my basic theory is that we tend to set up scientific progress and religious belief as sort of rivals in conflict, right? And so the story of the modern world is scientific progress and scientific inquiry triumphing over um, the sort of hidebound conservatism of religious authorities. And that story exists for a reason. There's obviously truth to it. Religious authorities have resisted scientific progress, have tried to sort of discourage certain kinds of inquiry. Um, but I think the reality is more complicated than that. And the reality is that the scientific pro project first emerges out of um, an extremely religious society, the religious societies of Western Europe that literally gave us wars of religion at the same time that modern science was getting off the ground. Um, and it and both science and religion proceed from an assumption that the universe exists to some extent for human beings, and that it therefore has a structure that we are capable of understanding and unlocking, uh, that there's sort of secrets out there that we, we have not yet discovered, but that we can discover. Uh, and obviously the way in which they are discovered religiously is different from the way they're discovered scientifically. Uh, but the two, the two share a certain kind of, you know, fundamentally optimistic mentality about how human beings relate to the structure of the universe as a whole. And so I think if you look at the history of the modern world, what you don't see is something as simple as science steadily overcoming religion. Instead, you get these sort of periods when scientific breakthroughs coexist with religious dynamism and innovation. If you look at, you know, late, late 19th century 
Europe, for instance, which is, you know, the period of Charles Darwin, the period of the Industrial Revolution. It's always also a period of actually tremendous religious ferment, both in traditional religions, there's sort of Catholic and Protestant revivals, and also the sort of fascinations with spiritualism and ghosts and the occult. And often it's some of the same people. Isaac Newton is sort of the famous earlier example who are interested in both, who are trying to figure out the secrets of the universe and also figure out what happens to us after we die or, you know, sort of to to, to figure out what's going on in the mind of God. And even down, I think, to the mid-20th century, you know, the space program in the United States emerges out of a very religious period in American history. Uh, it's it's sort of the last, the sort of sunset glow of old-fashioned American Protestantism. Um, and it's and and there's also a weird sort of occult subtext too to some of the people doing doing rocket research in the 1940s. So there's a weird sort of you know, sort of pagan belief in a hidden wisdom to the universe that's also at play here. Um, and again, I don't think that's exactly a coincidence. I think that culturally, the habits of mind, the scientific habits of mind and religious habits of mind are quite different. You get different personalities for both to some extent. But Religion, I don't think it's a coincidence that as religion decays and religious institutions weaken, that scientific progress might slow down too. That sort of the the latest wave of secularization, which is really follows from the 1960s and its social revolutions, um, hasn't actually been a friend to dynamism and scientific innovation. I think in the way that, again, a sort of easy story about religion and science and conflict would suggest. Absolutely fascinating. So, um, Ross, you wrote your book back in 2020, and a lot has happened since then. We've a little had, bit, a uh, few, a few uh, things. Just a couple of things. There's this thing called COVID. Uh, you know, the economy has gone up and down and all around. Uh, a lot has happened. If you were to write another update to the book today, or let's say the book was to be published today, would anything drastically have changed? Is there anything that's massively different? I mean, I, I think I wouldn't I wouldn't want to publish the book right now because I think we are still we you know we just lived through a you know dramatic historical trauma, a crisis that was not decadent. There's nothing decadent per se about, about a global pandemic. And we're still, I think, in the process, uh, at least, you know, those of us who try and parse civilizational trends for a living of figuring out what kind of crisis, what kind of trauma this was and how much, how much it really changes. So I think my, my, the book literally came out, you know, three weeks before COVID broke out. I got COVID on the book tour. <laughs> that was it was the first that, book I read during the lockdowns. That's that well, that's 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 amazing. I wish more people had I wish more people had had done that. But it wasn't really, it wasn't, I think, that well suited to that atmosphere of crisis. But I think, you know, so it describes the world of the last 50 years. And then you pass through this crisis. And the question is. Is it a crisis that jolts you out of decadence and sort of redirects a lot of the trends that I'm describing? Or is it a crisis that that deepens decadence in various ways? Um, 
And, you know, I've, I've gotten into this, I've had this discussion quite a few times, as you can imagine, since the book came out, but I think you can just see indicators pointing in a bunch, a bunch of different directions, right? So uh, clearly, the pandemic, it turned the birth dearth into a real baby bust. Um, in, and there's been some recovery of fertility rates in the last year or so, but not not a dramatic one, right? So, so far, if you were looking at the demographic side of decadence, you'd say, okay, you know, things, things, change, things change for the worse. Economically, you know, if you'd asked me a year ago, I would have been optimistic. I would have said, you know, we had this, we had this trauma that, but, you know, in crisis is opportunity. You get, um, you know, the sort of businesses that, that survive the pandemic are maybe more likely to grow afterward. There's a lot of pent up demand. You know, people were talking about, you may recall the Biden boom that we were going to have. Um, and then, you know, and then the, then, then we were, then the age of inflation returned. And now, you know, I think you have to be a little more pessimistic about Western economies capacity for growth over, over the next decade, um, to say nothing of the effects of, of the Ukraine war and the energy crunch and so on. Right. You know, in, in, in politics, you could look at, the first couple of years of the Biden presidency and say, actually, you know, sort of behind the scenes, there's a little more bipartisanship, a little more sort of solutions oriented policymaking than you saw in the Obama or Trump eras. We actually passed an infrastructure bill. We're talking about permitting reform, which is a sort of in certain ways, small, but in certain ways, really big part of how you break out of economic decadence. Like, like I was talking about before, make big projects easier to do. So that's, you know, at, at that level, I'm a little more optimistic, but at the level of sort of national partisan politics, um, the clash between a deeply unpopular, too old for the job liberal president and a Republican party that's sort of going deep into the mega bunker, that seems pretty, that seems like the same old stalemate, only worse. Um, so anyway, I could go on, but those are just a few examples of, you know, how different trends coming out of the pandemic cut different ways. And again, if I, yeah, if I were going to write the book again, I'd want another, another, another few years, at least to sort of process um, what we've been through. And obviously, of course, more crises could come along in, in that time because history doesn't, history doesn't always let you sort of sit back. I, I wrote the book out of a period when it seemed like we had sort of a lot of room to sort of sit back and assess and we haven't been in quite that kind of space since the book came out. It, it, it definitely seems, though, um, you know, over the last couple of years, some of the issues that are kind of some of these horsemen for causes for decadence, like government, for example, have really been in flux, right? You look at the war in Ukraine, you look at the divisiveness and the, the infighting within America and the tension. A lot of this seems to be very heavily exacerbated over the last couple of years. Um, I know you're saying you want to give it more time to see how everything kind of boils out. But if you were to make a prediction of how things are going to progress over the next several years, any thoughts? I mean, I st look, I still believe in decadence. For better, for, you know, I, I still believe that my thesis is broadly speaking correct, right? And that a lot of the, the decadence generates a lot of discontent. There's a real there's a real desire to break out of it, but it's really hard to break out of it. So, you know, take something like the war in Ukraine. Right. So from Vladimir Putin's perspective, the war in Ukraine was 
his sort of attempt to strike a blow against a decadent West to say, look, the West is in decline, America is in decline, we're going to restore the Russian empire. But he's not going to restore <laughs> restore the Russian empire, right? Like, I think, I think we can say that's pretty clear at the moment. Whatever is going to end decadence, it's not going to be, you know, the return of Russia as a world-dominating great power. So then on the other side of the war, you have Western liberals and American liberals who say, look at, you know, look at, look at the brave Ukrainians, look how successfully we've, you know, we've, we've helped them. This is going to lead to a renaissance for Western liberalism, a sort of recovery of our own internal confidence and, and strength. And that might be the case. Certainly, a lot of what's happened with Ukrainian resistance to the Russian invasion is is very inspiring. It certainly shows there's more life in liberal democracy than its critics would like to say. At the same time, what is the war? What is Ukraine going to look like in ten years? Ukraine before the war was a society with, you know, a depopulation problem. Its best and brightest were leaving for the West. People in Ukraine, again, to go back to that that horseman weren't having weren't having enough kids to sustain their own society it was growing much slower even than its neighbors uh, Poland and other parts of, of Eastern Europe are we is the war going to help with any of those problems is Ukraine in 10 or 20 years going to you know going to be look like Germany and France did 20 years after World War II, where you do a Marshall plan and suddenly it's just growing by leaps and bounds and sort of dynamism is back. I really have a hard time seeing that. I think Ukraine will get some money to rebuild and, you know, sort of the conflict with Russia will give it some renewed cultural and cultural and national vigor. But I, I don't see anything in this war that will help it escape this sort of destiny of being a declining hinterland of a declining, a declining Western center. I think, again, that's that's really hard to escape um, or China. Right. So. Again, a couple of years ago, you look at China, you say, okay, the West's response to COVID was terrible because we're politically decadent. We can't get anything done. We couldn't, you know, we couldn't contain or stop the disease. The Chinese did, were able to do that. They were able to crush COVID. They were showing that their authoritarian model, even if it's wicked, actually works quite well. So they're going to come out of the COVID era, um, you know, as, you know, sort of newly empowered and newly dominant. But in fact, the Chinese political system since then has been un, has gotten locked in its own sort of it's it sort of gotten high on its own zero COVID supply and is spending all of this energy trying to sustain permanently, permanently its sort of early successes against COVID in ways that are just dragging down its own economic growth rates, certainly further dragging down its birth rate. Um, the the central Chinese government, which I think was, you know, sort of had a claim 10 years ago to say, okay, we have a, we have a non-liberal source of legitimacy, right? We have this sort of meritocratic, uh, meritocratic one-party state where the party rules, it's the best and the brightest for real, and we're going to do better than the decadent Westerners. Well, now they're just turning into another sort of Putinish authoritarian cult of personality with Xi getting extended to a third term in spite of the fact that he doesn't have a lot of successes. Now, does that mean they aren't getting more powerful or that we shouldn't worry about them invading Taiwan? No, we should worry about these things. But if you're looking at China and saying, oh, that the future is China, you know, they're, you know, they're going to lead the world out of, out of decadence. I don't, I don't really see it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I am betting on the trends I'm describing in the book 
not everywhere, but largely reasserting themselves uh, in the rest of the 2020s. And I think, you know, if you look at the slate of Disney remakes of its own classic films, you can already see that, see that happening. So, Ross, what you mentioned reminded me of uh, one guest that we had on the show, which is uh, Martin Gurry. And yep. part of Martin's thesis on his book, uh, The Revolt of the Public, yep. is that social media and the rise of the internet is really powerful at bringing down our institutions and bringing down our elites, but it's not really good at building up whatever yes. it is next. So we have, you know, new powers arising saying, hey, we're going to take this, take advantage of the decadence in the West to build something new. But when they get to power, they actually can't build anything new. <laughs> is that sort of the movement that you see happening across the globe? Like, and is the, do you agree with Martin that the cause for that is actually social media and all of that? Yeah, I mean, I think the promise of China was that they were avoiding. So I think the problem Martin describes is one of the core problems of the Western world in the age of populism, right? That the internet helps. I mean, I, I think fundamentally there are actual sustained elite failures in the Western world. It isn't just the internet's fault, but the internet takes our understanding of those failures and sort of turbocharges it. So you're constantly being barraged by, you know, the, this disastrous thing, this corrupt thing, this problem and so on. Um, so it, it, it definitely turbocharges populist revolt. Uh, and then just as Martin says, it uh, populist revolt is unable is unable to actually govern. You either get sort of a the old elite just returns to power under a different guise, which is basically what happened in post-Brexit England. Um, you have sort of chaos and incompetence as in the Trump presidency, or you have as in France with the Gilets Jaunes protests, you have these sort of inchoate protests that never find a singular leader who can actually lead, guide them, guide them to power, um, or Chile, right? Which was, I think, one of you know one of Guri's best examples in certain ways, right? Because it's sort of outside the the normal, the sort of European and North American realm, right? You have sort of social a social media abetted revolution that leads to the writing of an entirely new constitution. And then the voters get the constitution. They look at it and they're like, well, we're not, we're not voting for this, right? This is, this is nuts. But the, what I was saying at the start, the promise or threat of China was always that it can avoid those. It has figured out how to avoid those dangers by basically depoliticizing the internet and controlling it and building a sort of China only authoritarian dominated internet that shunts people into entertainment and fashion and shopping and those aspects of social media, but keeps them from sort of organizing politically. And, and I, I mean, to some extent, that is still true that the Chinese, you know, there, there aren't, aren't a ton of cracks in Chinese control of the internet, even with all the, all the problems the country has had. Um, but I think you, yeah, so, so I think China doesn't exactly manifest the problem Guri is describing. It's more that China manifests sort of a more old-fashioned problem of centralized authoritarian control without sufficient checks and balances to keep it from blundering into disasters. Right, right. Um, so, Ross, maybe we could spend the last 10 minutes talking about uh, the optimistic case uh, in which your thesis of decadence could be wrong, which is yep. part of how you finish the book. In one of the things that you say in the book is that one of the cases uh, in which we may come out of this is 
as in a new renaissance. And I'm curious about the term renaissance there, um, because in some ways, what it, the way that we could come out of this is by reaffirming a lot of the old values and the old culture that we had back when the Apollo program was a thing. Um, so why renaissance as opposed to counter-reformation and a reaffirmation of you know, the values and the culture that we, that, that we lived in back then? Well, two reasons. One, I mean, the term renaissance itself, uh, I think, contains within it the idea of a reaching back, right? It is a rebirth. Um, it is, you know, and if you look at sort of the the things that get called renaissances in history, whether it's the Carolingian Renaissance or the Italian Renaissance, they're almost always, by definition, reaching back into the past in order to innovate, right? And I'm, you know, I'm a conservative of some kind. So I obviously think that that's, that that reaching back is essential. But it also has to be a reaching back that isn't just a kind of isn't just a kind of restoration. Uh, I mean, the Counter Reformation, for for instance, was itself a kind of a kind of renaissance. It did not just restore the Roman Catholicism that existed in Europe in like 1375 before Martin Luther came along. In part because that Roman Catholicism had fallen into its own kind of decadence, and you know you had three popes at once, right, and 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 so on. Instead, the Counter Reformation sort of reasserted some set of traditional Catholic ideas, defined specifically for the first time some contested ideas, sort of so establishing what does Catholicism stand for vis-a-vis -vis Protestantism, and then pioneered a set of new institutions like the Jesuits, new religious orders, new schools, new modes of architecture, um, new modes of missionary work. So it was it was reaching backwards and it was innovating at the same time. And in the same way, I think any renaissance in the 21st century can't be just a simple, you know, what they say on the on on Twitter, return with the Roman numeral V, right? We're just, you know, we're just we're just gonna go back to whatever trad world you're trying to go back to. No, it has to say, look, you know, the the what whatever form of traditionalism you're going back to, whether it's you know Apollo engineers going to Methodist churches with and wearing pocket protectors, or you know it's 19th century popes criticizing liberalism or something, you know whatever it is, you're taking something from that and synthesizing it with subsequent historical changes that can't just be unwound, right? So like just to take birth rates, right? So you you are not going to just simply restore the nuclear family of 1950s America or the traditional extended family of um you know sort of you know pre-industrialization agrarian societies you're going to say look those societies did a better job than we did at getting men and women paired off and married and having kids and maybe, you know, and, and we can learn something from them. We don't just need to sort of throw them into the past and slam the door and declare them patriarchal and bigoted and evil. But whatever new models that you have are, are going to have to account for the economic transformations that have happened since the rise of feminism and the legitimate claims that feminist movements made um, and so on down a list of, you know, things that have happened since 1955, right? So 
whatever the model of a healthy, happy marriage with kids in the year 2052, it's going to draw something from, I think, worlds that we have sort of tried to push into the past since since the 60s, but it's also going to have to do something new in its domestic arrangements, its economic arrangements, its child-rearing strategies, its educational strategies. So it's going to have to be both backward and forward looking at once. So given all of the challenges as a society and the global planet that we face, what in your mind keeps you the most optimistic? What gives you the most hope? Well, one, I mean, you know, to be sort of jingoistic for a minute, right, is I'm an American. And I think for all of America's, uh, all of America's decadence, one thing that, you know, even in the COVID era, I think has been made clear is that America still contains more dynamism and more creativity and also, you know, yeah, more conflict of various kinds than a lot of its rivals for civilizational power and influence. Um, I think as bad as America has looked at various points in the Trump and Biden eras, China and Russia and other would-be rivals, including including Europe, have have looked have looked worse in certain ways. Um, and so I'm I'm glad to be an American. I'm glad I'm glad to be where I am at at this moment as we're sort of trying to figure out new new paths to innovation and optimism. Um, because I think America is one of those still one of those likely places for those paths to start. And you know, the other thing is just I, I mean, I think you know, hu- human beings again, some of the very things that freak people out the most about the last few years, political turbulence, populist revolt, um, you know, people getting into really weird ideas on the internet, you know, relative, they they are, I think, signs of a fundamental dissatisfaction with comfortable stagnation, all the way to Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, or the fat people drinking big gulps in Wally, right, which is the, you know, the end point, the end point that I most fear is this sort of a, a rich, technologically proficient society sort of embracing its own dehumanization through sort of entertainment, uh, you know, entertainment and drugs, basically. That's, that's, that's the dystopia that I, that I fear the most. And I think some of the things that have been most turbulent and disturbing about our politics and our culture recently are also reminders that human nature is hopefully not just going to be satisfied with that, with a sort of slow slide towards the armchair and the the IV drip and the virtual reality goggles. And that, yeah, that that people are people, people are people are going to be constantly looking for alternatives, even if the pathways to finding them aren't clear. And as long as that process goes on, there's hope for dynamism, hope for renaissance, hope for, you know, societies that just have children once again and believe that believe in the future in a way that, you know, I felt like America in 2013, you know, really was in danger of just, just not. Amazing. That's a great way to wrap. Ross, thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. 